It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is comedian Tammy Pescatelli. She's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana, Las Vegas, November 3rd through the 6th. For ticket information, go to tropilv.com. And for everything about Tammy Pescatelli, go to pescatelli.com. And you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And Tammy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. And Facebook and TikTok and, oh my goodness, who knows? Probably there's a MySpace somewhere. <laughs> Uh, the, do that when we end it to the Facebook. Whatever. Oh no, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> whatever's new, whatever new thing, it's. I'm probably already on it. I don't know about it. Fair enough. So you were born in Perry, Ohio, which, to my mind, you're of Italian descent. You should have been born in Perry, Como, Ohio. Well, funny you would say that. My grandmother actually used to date Perry Como. Como. Um, Cuomo. Yeah, she, he was, he was kind of related to the guy from New York and kind of not. No, uh, my grandmother actually dated Perry Cuomo. He was a barber at the time. And my grandfather stole my grandmother. I grew up in an Italian area. My grandparents are all, um, immigrants. So my, my parents were both first generation. Does that account for part of your view in comedy? Here's how I see you. You come across as a, hilarious, no-nonsense type of comic. Notice I didn't say male or female, just comic. Well, that's lovely. I love that. I worked very hard to, you know, they're all into gender-specific now, but I said, you know, I, we just wanted to be seen as comics. Someone once gave me, they were trying to insult me and say that all I ever talked about was being Italian early on in my career when I first got on television, and they were like, that's all she talks about. And first of all, that's all I knew because I had given up a real life to in order to be a comic because while everybody else was building, getting married, having jobs, I was a comic traveling on the road. So all I could draw upon was my past experience. I wasn't really living. And second of all, I was actually thrilled because I'm like, oh, wow, they didn't even notice I was a woman. <laughs> so You've made the choice to go on the road and become a comic as opposed to getting married, having kids, doing other kinds of things. So what drove you initially to go into the world of comedy? You had other choices, of course. Was it something while you were growing up, you had a sense of humor, you saw how people reacted to you, and then you decided to take it professional? Or was it something else? Well, I had a sense of humor, but I wasn't funny. I was sarcastic. Um, I was the person also, though, that could ad-lib us. If we were doing a play together, I could ad-lib us to back on script if you forgot your part. So those two things were intriguing to me. Show business was intriguing. There was something inside of me that wanted to be on the TV. I thought that people on the television lived inside it, and I wanted to go live in the TV. I told my mom when I was a little kid. So, um, and, you know, as a, as a time, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of humor. We didn't watch sitcoms in our house. We didn't. My mother was sick with cancer a bunch. I didn't have a lot of that humor kind of left my grandparents because it didn't translate. Jokes don't really translate. Although my grandparents, uh, my one side loved to watch like Johnny Carson and things like that, but I don't know if they got it all. 
So I loved stand-up. I don't know why. I was just so drawn to it. I found Eddie Murphy's tapes and and listened to them in my closet with a sleeping bag over my head. I loved to watch, right? I loved to listen to albums, Red Fox, Cheech. I would take them out of the library and bring them home and listen to them in my bedroom with that little plastic record player. And, you know, I just really enjoyed laughing. I guess I saw what the currency was worth. I had some uncles that were, I have this one uncle, you know, who's alive still, but he was, my uncle Damon was just like a Rodney Dangerfield. He used to play pranks and do all kinds of crazy stuff. So I saw what the currency was with laughter. And I saw that, you know, wow, how tensions, even at the dinner table would drop if somebody laughed. So I think that's kind of how I was intrigued with it. But I found it purely by accident. I had graduated from college. I have a degree in fashion design. Broke up with my boyfriend. My parents had moved from Ohio. Uh, I went to live with them for the summer before I did my internship in New York. And literally, um, I got a job at the comedy club because I thought, well, what a, I'll be there for three months. I'll make a little money. I'll see some stand up and, you know, and meet some people. And a woman came through. And she was an MC. And all of a sudden, then I learned that you didn't have to be famous in order to make a living as a stand-up. And I learned about the MC feature headlining portion of a show. And then I also had a big mouth and went home that night and said, I'm funnier than her to my entire family. And um, confidence, too. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, because it was just like, you know, they were asking me, what's this? I'm like, well, I think I'm funnier than her. And um and they were like, okay, bet. And at that point, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a true and true hard headed. I don't even get into horoscopes with a hard headed Sicilian tourist. If you tell me no, I'll probably try to I'll almost die trying to prove to you that I can. So I did an open mic and it was sponsored by a radio station and they hired me within a month to be a sidekick on the morning show. And then it became my show six months later. And I did it for two and a half years before I left while all the while being a house MC, bringing comics in to interview them just like you. And then that was it. And then I was on the road. Great. I've been 28 years on the road. Long time. We got to talk about that in a second because that, that's fascinating to me as well. I want to say this, and this is my own observation. I think because of your personality and your approach and your material that you could be funny working until you drop. I don't want you to drop in the next oh, year. Thank you. Is that some people, for whatever reason, they get to a certain age or they get to a certain point and then they're just not funny anymore or whatever happens. I don't know. But I think it's because of the combinations we talked about. You have the confidence, you have the material, you have the viewpoint, and you have the experience. And you're not competing. This is going to sound wrong. You're not competing as some comics do with looks, so to speak, although you're very good looking, but that's not your genre. Well, thank you. That's kind of to be funny. Well, I used to do a joke about it because early coming on, on to this, there weren't a lot of, there were probably 20 working female comics. And I used to do a joke and I'm like, people say, you know, you're too pretty to be a comic. Cause that's what people used to say. Like that was my, I don't know. That's just what even networks would say. We don't know what to do with you because you're too pretty to be a comic. And I'm like, uh, first of all, have you seen my nose? Like I could do everything from the side and we could, you know, I'm 
true Sicilian. And um, then I, you know, I just go, but like, who set the precedent for female comedians? Like Roseanne, Paula Poundstone. I win, you know, um, which got both Paula and Roseanne mad at me. Um, but, but Tom Arnold loved that joke. Um, but you know, it was a different time. I wasn't trying to do that. I was actually trying to distract. Not that I'm the most beautiful or anything like that, but I was young and, and cute-ish. And so I would wear two bras on stage. I would wear big bulky clothes because inevitably, you know, a female comic back then was a novelty. And I'm not talking about like New York or LA. I'm talking, I was in, you know, I've been in the trenches, Omaha, Peoria, India. Like I've, I've played by the time I was 27, I had played every state, including Hawaii and Alaska. And then, you know, USO tours and no one, I'm going to tell you, like, I hear a lot of these young girls now who are gorgeous and funny say that the climate at some of the venues has been sexualized. And I'm like, honey, it's always been sexualized. We just didn't buy into it. When you show up naked on your comedy album cover, that's what you're going to get. When I was 25 and Playboy came to me, not once, twice, three times, and every time up the money, ending at like 50 grand, which was huge for me in the late 90s. I mean, the first year in comedy, I made 7000 At the time they came to me, I think I was barely making $20,000 to do Funny Women a Playboy. I had to, to be honest, it wasn't a, 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 it wasn't a dilemma because my father would have been mortified. Anybody can do anything they want to do. I still had brothers in high school and college. I didn't want them to be embarrassed of it. And I wanted to be taken seriously as a comic. I knew that if I posed naked, then when I had to stay in the condos with those guys, they'd have a naked photo of me. They'd never appreciate my jokes. And I didn't know the world would change and accept women. I knew that I was on an uphill battle as it was. Um, but, uh, you know, 50 grand was a lot at that time. I, I you know, it was a, a conversation that I had with myself several times, but I just knew it had nothing to do for me with comedy. And of course, then they upped the ante by wanting you to stay at the Playboy Mansion with Hugh Hefner. Well, uh, I used to do a lot. That's how it started. I, I was very blessed that Mitzi Shore loved me at the comedy store and they would do, um, every couple, well, I think it's a couple times a year they would do a golf tournament where it would be the Playboy golf tournament and then they'd come to the comedy store and we'd entertain them. And I kept getting invited to the parties and this and that. And Mr. Hefner really loved me and was very nice to me, at, but apparently wanted to see me naked as he saw everybody else. <laughs> and he wanted, to, wanted you to live with him for a while up in the... Uh, now I wish I would oppose naked. The older you get, you wish you had a monument to what the body used to be. I'm like, I could start an OnlyFans now, but they'd pay me to get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm still intrigued by your 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 career in the trenches. But before I even get into that, I want to talk to you about, so you're married, you're happily married. Well, we're all happily married. Yes, married. but I really am happily married. Yes, I are. absolutely yeah. adore my husband. Is your husband, because of a similar background, is it easy for him to realize, and you notice I'm talking with my hands since I'm talking, <laughs> uh, is it easy for him to not relate to what you're doing, but not be threatened by the fact that you are a road warrior, a funny comedian, etc.? Well, sure. First of all, he met me like this, so he knows. It's not like we... But 
he's funnier than I am. He's in daily life. He does some stand up, but he's more of like a prankster and he would, and was a phenomenal actor. He was the original Tony in Tony and Tina's wedding. Like he's done, he gets it. He gets show business. He, and he also has the, I used to do a joke about the confidence of a no tooth hooker. And that is what my husband has. Um, he literally has old school. I was watching the other day. I was flipping through channels in the hotel and Saturday night fever was on. And I kind of laughed and cried at the same time because in fourth grade, we snuck in to see Saturday night fever. And I probably really haven't watched it since. And I just realized this past Saturday that I actually married Tony Monero. <laughs> no wonder I fell in love with my Brooklyn boy because this I loved that character. I loved that guy. I had no idea. Well, it also gives you both a solid foundation. Yeah, he gets it. I mean, he really, really gets it. And then as, you know, and he's an amazing father. And he, like, people will say to me, like, uh, doesn't he get mad? I'm like, no, this is how we cover bills. Like, he's right. he gets it, you know? I mean, exactly. and for centuries, centuries, they have done jokes about take my wife, please, and this and that. And he and, does, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, uh, Rodney Dangerfield with his, like, why can't I make fun like people and boy people sometimes give you a hard time but i don't really care about those no, people there's a precedent yeah. for it phyllis diller used to always talk about her husband fang, fang. so mm-hmm. and you also had joan rivers and there and her other there was selma diamond or you, if you want to go further back in the sense of a, a comic persona that she had a long career too just because she was talented she's more of a writer than a performer but her name was selma diamond and, and she appeared occasionally on the tonight show yeah, yeah, I know exactly. I, I'm a, I was a huge Carson person. Um, that's what my goal was always the Tonight Show. Uh, I was in show business when he was still there, but by the time I was good enough, it was Jay. And I'm very blessed that it was Jay because Jay let me on four or five times and has been nothing but a kind friend to me ever since. That's great. Let's go back to the road stuff because that, hmm. that's intriguing. And I think I, I'd like our listeners or to learn a little bit about that from you. Being on the road, so you're putting up with not only fellow comedians, but you're also putting up with patrons at the venue. You're you're dealing with club owners and club managers, etc. How does that all work? Well, I'll tell you. I made a. Um, let me just say it like this. I made a edict if you will, for lack of a better term for myself, that I was not going to date any comedians um, because I knew that I had to live with them in the condos. And when we say condos, a lot of people think you have this beautiful, you know, they picture going down to Boca. Uh, no, sometimes they were just like little apartments that sometimes didn't even have keys because whatever random, they were flop houses basically for comedians and you had the room based on your position in the show and sometimes if you're an MC, you didn't even have a room so I wouldn't work those clubs obviously because I didn't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable and sleep on the couch but I made a decision not to sleep with any comics because I knew from growing up with boys and my father being in football and athletes and all this stuff that if I slept with one I'd never be able to refute that I didn't sleep with anyone else. If somebody said, oh, I slept with her. Well, I'm living with them for Tuesday through Sunday. No one's going to be there 
for my side. So eventually the word just got around. Yeah, Tammy's young and she, but, uh, don't try it, right? There was someone, there was, I've only had one incident that was really scary. And it happened to be my very first week on the road where someone tried to break in. Another comic tried to break into my room. And yet another comic took me aside, the headliner, who's a big Vegas headliner, Mac King. Mac took me aside. Well, first of all, Mac came out of his room. At the time, he used to do a trick in his act where he would pull a brick out of his suit. And he came out in the hallway with a brick to go at the other comic because it was a, a bigger guy and he was drunk and trying to get in my room and telling us all what he was going to do to me. And Mac took me aside and said to me, you have to deal with this because if you're going to do this, you're going to have to be the one that gets tough enough to handle that from them because it's not the first and it's not going to be the last. So then I threatened that guy that I took the the guy who tried to break into my room aside and said, the next time your wife calls the comedy condo, I'm going to tell her exactly what you tried to do if you do it again. And that was that. So I slowly became tougher with that. And then I think, you know, I think that the word got around that that's not what I was doing. Patrons would be who patrons were, but they kind of, I was like everybody's little sister. So I think, you know, and anytime I was treated less than, I just didn't go back. I mean, I couldn't expect the system to change. All I could control was my decisions, you know? It is what it is. I actually, though, did have to stay in a condo twice with a guy who became one of the most notorious serial rapists in the country. He was actually the winner of Star Search. His name was Vince Champ. And I stayed with him. We were not working together, but we were sharing the condo. I was leaving and staying over an extra day and he was coming in a day early and um I barely saw him said hello goodbye he treated me like dismissively so I just assumed that was my station in comedy it wasn't that he just didn't like women and um I never saw him but he raped a girl the night that I stayed with him and the FBI pulled me off stage three weeks later and took me down and quizzed me for five hours because they kept saying to me, your boyfriend, your boyfriend, you met him here, you met him there. And I'm like, I don't know this guy. I mean, I have no idea who he is. And we had to get, God rest his soul, another club owner to verify that that's how comedy works, that condos, sometimes you didn't know each other. And then I carried that for like 10 years, 12 years, where that girl, I think the girl saved my life, sadly. Because if I would have ended up in the condo with him, who knows what would have happened. And so I started a podcast. My best friend's a cop. We've been friends since, I mean, we were little kids. I think I knew her in kindergarten. She went on to have, uh, to be in a really male dominated field as well. She was in law enforcement and she was always like one of the guys, just like me over in comedy. And she retired and I used to have to see, in order to see her, I used to have to go on ride-alongs with her so we could spend time there. She'd have to come out on the road with me, which was probably a lot easier than me seeing some of the stuff I saw. But I, of course, have always been a true crime aficionado, and she lived it. And so we started a podcast about uh, true crime in comedy because there's a lot of that in the comedy world. So it's called The Cop and the Comedian, A True Friendship Crime Podcast. Nice. 
Yeah, so. I could see the the analogy because there's a lot of killing going on stage. Ah, that's true. Well, so. you know, the truth is, is that as a young woman on the road, I w experienced a lot of chaos. Uh, I had to work very hard to stay safe. So do you see a bifurcated future in podcasting and comedy? Because it's so easy to do a podcast these days. You could be on the road and actually do a podcast with your friend or without your friend, in either case, as part of your on-road experience. I mean, I hope so. Listen, I started podcasts long before everybody else. I did ultra mini podcasts, three-minute things. Try, I've tried a, several different things. The problem for me is that I give everything I have on stage. So when I'm, this might be the only one that actually works for me because it's completely different than who I am on stage. When I was doing all the ones that were about me being funny or this or that, I found it very hard to continuously stay that creative on the podcast, on stage. I felt like it was suffering because I, I was weakening the knot. I was pulling everything taut. This might work because this has nothing to do. I mean, I might tell a joke or two in the middle of it, but it has nothing to do with being funny. And available on Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms. Actually. Yes, it'll be when it comes out, it'll be available everywhere. We're going to drop all 10 episodes at the same time. Oh, nice. Okay, great. We'll look forward to it. And I'm glad you mentioned it. I wanted to mention your husband again, because it's an interesting story. Does he ever get a chance to go on the road with you? Yes, I wouldn't have been able to continue my career when I was pregnant without him. Because as I said, my agent told me my career was over. <laughs> I mean, it became one of my best jokes in my entire act. He'd never seen a pregnant woman on stage. And said, Apparently, you've never been to a really bad strip club. But I physically needed someone to go on the road towards the end of it and help me. And yes, I was on stage the night before I gave birth. Now, when people go, oh, that's horrible. Well, first of all, there's no maternity leave in comedy. Okay, so I had to work till the very end because if you don't work, you don't make money and you don't get paid. I didn't have the luxury that some people have. Second of all, my son came three weeks early. I was planning on taking time off, but it just lets me know that he has excellent timing because the moment <laughs> I was done, he was here. <laughs> I just see the water breaking on stage. And oh, no, it, it was real close to do it in the back of Governor's Comedy Club in Long Island. <laughs> Did it help having your husband with you when it came time to get the check from the comedy club owner in various venues? No, not for that. I mean, by that time, I was already, you know, 14, 15 years in. I'm I'm 28-year veteran, so my kid's 14. So no, they never, I have good agents, I have good managers, I have good attorneys, they don't. But what it did help with was just the little things when people wouldn't think, like there was one club owner who wanted me to leave because I got there and I was seven months pregnant and the comedy club owner in Florida. And he was, he was mad because I was pregnant. And my husband was like, what does it have to do with how funny she is? And I think that put him in, like, even though I was saying that, he wasn't hearing it. So, and, and, and that was the only thing. And then my husband actually was the one who called my agent and my agent got on the phone with him and said, fine, if you wanted to leave, pay her. Like, I don't, it was the craziest thing that he, he'd said, you didn't tell us she was pregnant. What does that have to do with anything? It's something you couldn't get away with now, but in 2008, you could. If anything, it's funnier to see a female come out on stage and she's pregnant and it's funny while she's standing there with 
her baby. <laughs> I mean, I got news for you. Even pregnant, I wasn't as fat as some of the other comics <laughs> that have been famous over the years. We won't make I had lived in L.A. emaciated, <laughs> so it wasn't fair. I'm like, you'll you'll let a 300 pound guy on stage. But me pregnant at 145 pounds is a problem for you? Two of you pregnant couldn't make one of those comedians. Those, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. Is there a generational perspective? We talked about this earlier, but because of the fact that you've been doing this a long time, you have a certain amount of wisdom and perspective. And younger female comics may not have that, especially with culture changes, etc. So are you able to communicate with younger female comics and do they appreciate what you did and what you do and your perspective, even though they may not see it the same way? I really don't know how to answer that because I love a lot of the young female comics. I think that they're pretty great. I did not start comedy to be a female comic. I started to be a comic. So I think that great. was... But when I, I guess, let me rephrase it, Your Honor. No, but I don't, are you saying, do they give me any reverence or any no, credit? No, not at all. No, 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 oh. no, 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 no. I'm asking about whether they're able to relate to you and vice versa because of your experience versus theirs, because there's also culture changes as well. Are they able to relate to you and see the funny in you and vice versa? That's where I was going with it. I guess you'd have to ask them if they could relate to me because I don't, I don't know. I don't see enough of them. I don't live okay. in LA or New York. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know what I mean? I kind of yeah. just go out on the road. I'm the headliner. I go out, I do what I got to do. And then I come home. Well, I figured I, you might encounter a few on the road. That's why I asked the question. Sure. There's a few that I, but I can't know that those two or three that I see speak for, I bring a lot of women with me and I hope that that helps them. And I hope that they can relate to that. But I think it's different. I think it's a weird thing. I, my generation, literally as women, we came out and wanted to be comics, not female comics. This generation is amazing because they're embracing that femininity. I couldn't because it wasn't, it wasn't cool. If you were girly, you didn't get booked. If you were girly, they didn't give you specials. If you were girly, there was nothing to it. The only time I got to be girly is I could dress nice for a Tonight Show appearance or something like that. So it's not, even, even at highest levels, there was always a glass ceiling for certain women. You, you played, you played either the witch, the, the, you know, the, a word you can't even say now rhymes with bore, or you played the goofy person. You know what I mean? There was no, those were your roles. So I think they have a different perspective now, these young girls, and I'm happy for them. You know, I just, it's a different one from mine because also when I started, I think that's his natural thing. When I started, I couldn't relate. There were only a few women, but it was Roseanne Barr. It was Joan Rivers. They were talking about their husbands and their facelifts and and their kids. I, I couldn't relate to that. Their divorce. still are going further back, too. Right, right. And then if there was, you know, then there were the quirky ones. Ellen was quirky. Paula Poundstone was quirky. Judy Tenuta was quirky. I couldn't relate to that either. So I think, I, although I respected and admired them, it wasn't my story at that time. Now, facelifts, husbands, kids, I don't have a facelift yet, but I would. Um, you know what I mean? Now I get it. Right. Before I let you go, do you see yourself expanding in terms of not just the road or, or maybe as a substitute for the road and doing other things to expand your, I'll use that wonderful term, brand? 
Academy. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I never, I kept, I was, I came up in a different time where you just had to give it your act. You had to have a, a point of view. You had to have people come see you, which is everything that I've accomplished. And you had to keep being relevant and keep getting stuff, but it was, it's now so much more. And yes, I am trying, clearly. We are starting that podcast. I am trying to write a book. I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but it's called uh, Death by Paper Cuts. That's about <laughs> stories, my almost rans. And then I'm trying to act a little bit more. That's not up to me, you know, but I'm auditioning more where I, I never had. But that also goes to the technology because as a comic, you're always out on the road. So auditions would come in and I'd be like, I can't come do it. I'm in, you know, North Carolina. Now I can audition from wherever I am. So I think that's part of the reason. So hopefully you'll see me acting a little bit more. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been comedian Tammy Pescatelli. She's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas, November 3rd through the 6th. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Tammy Pescatelli, go to pescatelli.com. And you could follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And Tammy, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. And don't forget to go to Prime and check out both my hour specials are there, the Way After School special and Finding the Funny. I appreciate you, Ira. I think you're great. And I hope I get to see you when I'm out in Vegas. Definitely so. And thanks again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,